don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 65. And today we're talking about Cool Hand Luke from 1967, directed by Stuart Rosenberg. Screenplay about Don Pierce and Frank R. Pearson from the novel written by Don Pierce, who I found out uh, through Wikipedia died in 2017. So, But oh, this wow. movie is apparently based on his actual experience on a chain gang in Florida somewhere. So that's something. Cool hand Luke, first hand experience. Yep. Yes. Uh, I see it has a 100% uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, as it should, because I'd seen this movie like a long time ago and forgotten about most of it. Remembered the iconic scenes like the eating the eggs and the ending and things like that. But watching it now, kind of coming through things I've learned both in books and in living life. Uh, I think this is a pretty poignant film. Um, and it's also just a good kind of like dudes rock bro out movie <laughs> about you know, yeah, deep, deep male bonding and stuff like that. Yeah, I uh, I had seen it. I think I like I own the DVD, and and I had seen it, but I did not remember anything about it. I was uh, for some reason I remembered the parking meter thing just mm-hmm. randomly a, a couple weeks ago, and was like I should watch Cool Hand Luke again, and I did, and I was like, how the fuck did I? not pay attention to this movie the first time it's amazing i uh for christmas jensen got me this like uh uh framed picture it's this awesome picture of uh i think it's the dvd cover where paul newman's on uh, as luke is on the back of the one of the trucks you know where uh, on the side of the road where they work he's his feet are in chains and he's smoking a cigarette and smiling and it has this very, and, and the movie itself has this very sort of myth of Sisyphus kind of ethos to it. Uh, you know, you have to, I think we've said this on the on the podcast before, I think Camus says, you have to imagine Sisyphus smiling. Yeah. And that's sort of, to me, what that, what that picture is. Uh, anyway, I, I, uh, I have some good things to say about the movie, mostly good things. Yeah, and it kind of becomes, you know, we, we have to imagine Luke smiling, which is even more or less what is said at the end when, uh, yeah. Drag line yeah. Is when, he, when they ask, when they, when they drive him away, he's like, you know, what he looked like? Did he say anything? He said, no, he was smiling. He had that old Luke smile. <laughs> uh, and that's of course, uh, George Kennedy is drag line and just a, a great role. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, plays it kind of, masterfully uh, just a one at one an oscar for it, I, believe. Hmm? I think he won the oscar for best supporting role yeah yeah he did um which is uh i mean yeah he should big old country dumbass drag line <laughs> um in that great sort of prison movie trope which this is sort of a prison movie although uh, i saw some criticism that apparently the uh depiction of life in a prison camp was maybe not the most true to life but at the same time it's not like they make it look like it was super easy 
but so. it's also it's also a metaphor you know it's like <laughs> this is not a documentary yeah yeah exactly um and the metaphorical nature of the movie is something that i didn't expect on this second watching because when i watched it the first time i was maybe i don't know 17 16 something like that so i was just like oh, cool movie and didn't really think about it super deeply um but th- that kind of metaphorical nature everything to like from things that luke says and his liter- having a literal argument with god as it's raining and then after he eats the eggs and he's laying on the table in the christ pose even with his feet like overlapped it's yeah. such a it, there's so many little moments like that that you don't I don't know. It's a really deeply kind of countercultural movie, not in the sense that it's like Easy Rider and it's about hippies or whatever, but it's literally against sort of living within American culture. Yeah, I mean, this this came out in 1967, and it feels. I, I watched some YouTube video, I think, that called it the spiritual cousin to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and and you know most people are familiar with the movie, but. I mean, the the novel, Ken Kesey's novel came out in 62. Uh, incidentally, I think Paul Newman was in the film adaptation of Sometimes a Great Notion, Ken Kesey's next novel. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, it feels it, it's a it's a similar story. I don't think there's there, there's not really the sort of Christian symbolism uh, in the one clue of the cuckoo's nest like there is um in uh cool hand luke but yeah one thing i noticed uh in the the last time i watched it uh, that i didn't notice the first couple times is uh it's right before luke tries to escape for the first time you know they his his mom dies they put him in the isolation box or whatever they call it Mm -hmm. the hole and uh and then he's going to try to escape and I didn't notice that, you know, they're, they're having this like party. Uh, they're celebrating to make noise so that Luke can, you know, saw through the floor. Mm-hmm. I didn't catch the first time that it's uh, July 4th. It's Independence Day. And but that scene starts the, the camera's very low. It's on someone dancing and they there's like a uh, an emphasis on the shackles on this dancing man's feet there's ankles and so you see this man dancing in shackles and then the camera pans up and someone says happy independence day and like that is uh like it's done it's done subtly enough to where it's not obvious on the first watch but when you are paying attention to it you see that that is like uh definitely a comment on on the nature of american freedom yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, I mean, you think about Luke being in prison and kind of who he is as the, the foundation, like at the very beginning of the movie, when they bring him into the, the prison and it's like, oh, well, you were in the army, you fought in the war, all the, but you got busted back down to Buck Private and all this sort of stuff. Like, you're you're a hero. What are you doing in prison, right? And then they figure out it's because he was cutting the heads off the the parking meters. And like, why would you do a full thing like that? And he's like, something to do. Passing the time. It's passing the time. And it's like, it's just such a great, again, sort of like 
the Sisyphean task is not as much Luke in prison, like digging his own grave and coming in and out of it. Like that's, that is a Sisyphean task, but it seems like it was all the Sisyphean task stuff was what he was doing before he got into the prison was, you know, living within the society where, you know, he obviously doesn't really seem to believe much in what he was sent to fight for in the first place. Um, we don't know what happened in the military, but maybe it was insubordination. Maybe it was like a sort of like in the prison, this realization that what he's doing is just, you know, bullshit that is serving nobody, but, you know, kind of the powers that be. Um, well, yeah, he said he says both in response to why, why did you cut the heads off parking meters? And, uh, you know, why, how were you so brave in the war? His response to both of those questions is something like just something to do, just passing the time. Um, and the parking meter thing, I think, is is to show that any act of any degree or severity that is in opposition to the ruling order is sort of equal in the eyes of the ruling order. Because yeah. at, at the end, when he's in the church, when Luke is in the church, he says, I know I'm a I'm an evil guy. I I killed people in in the war. I destroyed municipal property. And it's sort of a joke, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that that in this uh, in this world, cutting the heads off parking meters and killing human beings is is seen as equally sinful or something. Yeah, and just thinking about park, everybody fucking hates parking meters. I don't think a parking meter has ever done anybody any good. Um, I once got a ticket at a parking meter, which was fully paid. Uh, you know, just shit like that going on. But it's just you think about it as it's the commodification of space in order to do nothing and, other than make a profit and time and time. Yes, so literally time and space, <laughs> uh, putting a monetary value upon those things. So it's it's sort of the, the perfect thing for a character like Luke to target, and it's also it's just getting what was it his initial sentence is like two years or something, yeah, for for destroying parking meters. I mean, come on, nobody yeah. would. I, I wouldn't even imagine that would be that illegal. I would think it'd be like a fine. Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, I think the movie is a lot less. Uh, attempts to be a lot less realistic on a second and third viewing. You sort of, you sort of clue into the, to the metaphors and to the kind of absurdity of it. You know, it's, it's shot, the story is told, uh, visually in a, in at least believable, if not realistic way. But if you actually sort of sit down and kind of wrestle with the, conceits of the narrative you're like oh this is like a farce this is satire um, so there's a there's a lot going on because because i think you're right a, a lot of people perceive this as just like a kind of bro movie mm -hmm. kind of a uh, it gets compared to shawshank redemption a lot and for good reason uh but it's you know it's this classic uh, you know, it's just kind of this classic. People talk about it the same way they talk about like Steve McQueen movies and stuff like that. But yeah. this is this is very of the '60s and anti-establishment for sure. It's one of those movies, like you're saying, like Steve McQueen movies or something like that, where it'll get cited as like a some sort of 
masculine kind of epic about being a man and standing up and not putting up with the bullshit of the man and that sort of stuff. While at the same time, uh, it's sort of missing the deeper countercultural and sort of existentialist themes in the movie. Um, well, and and people who say that don't. It's like, the, do you know who the man is? Exactly. Yeah, and and it's that same sort of generalized thing of like the same kind of impulse that leads fifty-seven-year-old men to buy Harley Davidsons because they want to look like an outlaw. That that's the sort of thing. Or we're talking or about. storm the fucking capital. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what? God, what fucking day was that? Tuesday, right? Wednesday. The sixth. Six, right. Yeah. That. So Wednesday. Um, on that day, I thought it was Tuesday all day. So I keep thinking it was on Tuesday. Um, but yeah, that's a whole, that, well, I don't know. That's not a completely unrelated impulse, but there's a lot more going on behind that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, one thing I saw in watching a couple different videos is everyone now in, in, 2021 has to immediately distance themselves and disavow the way the scene with the woman washing the car is shot Mm -hmm. Uh, because it is a complete objectification uh, of of her body. I will say uh, I, I, I don't disagree that it, that it's, that it's offensive uh, because (laughs) <laughs> that that is what it does, uh, but I do think that uh, women in general play a mostly metaphorical role in the movie. Obviously, there are no uh, uh, female characters other than that woman and Luke's mother, um, but it, uh, the the way the inmates talk about women. And like the picture in the magazine that that Luke sends them, uh, women seem to play, uh, it, and and the sort of crassness that the inmates use when they talk about women. It seems like in the in the kind of the religious allegory that's going on. Um, interestingly, it's almost like the filmmaker uses flesh as spirit, and so the the sort of horny, you know banter that you hear um when they're watching the woman wash the car by the end i think you can understand as a kind of like a spiritual longing because here these guys are trapped in this very uh oppressively masculine world you know the prison is sort of the stand-in for the world um or or maybe america um but then at the end uh, the, the sort of conclusion to the to the Christ figure allegory is that photograph uh, or, or from the magazine, sort of uh, ascending ghost-like into the sky, and the the road is this cross, and there's there's a cross on the photograph as well from where it's been folded, um, and and the the women he's with sort of function as as like angels or some sort of spirits kind of guiding him up to heaven so so i think there's i do think there are serious problems with the way uh the the woman is the the woman washing the car is depicted 
but I do think there are more there at least was a, a, a bigger attempt or a more uh, significant meaning attempted with that scene. Yeah. And th- it does have uh, that. I don't know if it's successful or not. No. I mean, well, it's still a movie, you know, from the, the 60s. So there's going to be some sort of, uh, I don't know, political correctness isn't the right term, but just sort of light misogyny, I think. But there is that, that element of, uh, what Lucille, right, is yeah. what what Dragline calls her, um, yeah. and what I think what she's credited as in, in the credits. Um, but it's that thing where she knows that she's got this kind of male gaze upon her and is kind of welcoming it and is sort of exhibitionist. And that's even mm-hmm. what like Luke says, oh, she knows exactly what she's doing. And she's like, yeah. obviously, like, you know, trying to tease this these men. Um is, Which, is, I don't the know Sandlot, if it better or worse. is the Sandlot shouting that line out when, you know, Wendy Peppercorn is is uh, putting suntan on her uh, suntan lotion on, and you know they're staring at her, and someone says she don't know what she's doing, and someone one of the other kids says, "Yeah, she does. She knows exactly what she's doing." <laughs> Maybe I don't know when it is that be. supposed to be. That would be before that, wouldn't it? Although I guess the movie that that would be an interesting reference because it would be a movie that was made after Cool Hand Luke, but is set but probably set before. before. It. <laughs> yeah, um, that is interesting. Uh, I was also uh, there's also a shout out in Major Pain to the famous uh, uh, what we have here is failure to communicate. <laughs> yeah, Major Pain. You, if you want to talk about movies I loved when I was a kid, Major Pain. Thought that was the Dude, funniest it, thing in the world. It holds up. It is. It, it, I mean, I watched it recently, and it's just like, how did they get away with some of this stuff? Um, it's just, it's deeply offensive in some parts, uh, but also hilarious. Gotta be, uh, gotta be somebody needs some killing. <laughs> gotta be somebody needs some killing. Uh, I love the scene at the beginning where. Uh, he's going to be like a, a a police officer maybe and he, he's doing a, a domestic abuse trial sort of role play and you know his job is to neutralize the situation and he just steps in and starts smacking the guy <laughs> you like to beat women <laughs> uh, I'll have to rewatch I haven't seen it in so long I just re- the it, it's you know that thing about uh full metal jacket where it, it's probably based on that too where arlie ermy comes in and just like chews all the guys out um yeah it, it's yeah. the same thing but with children so it's like even funnier <laughs> as you can imagine <laughs> yes um uh, i just remember this you're gonna before, give me 25 squat thrusts <laughs> uh i could quote major pain all I'm day gonna, long I, it's, I'm gonna make sad. you boys strong. Um, <laughs> we gonna start the hard stuff. The uh, the line, uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Is you know obviously the most famous line, one of the most famous lines from any movie ever. And but I do think it's I don't think it's just like incidental. Um, you know how like in like Casablanca. The line is like, we'll always have Paris or here's looking at you, kid, or whatever it is. Uh, it's not really a 
it's just it's just like a cool thing that Humphrey Bogart said. It doesn't really it's not like a an important part of the movie. Yeah. Uh, I think I think uh, what we have is a failure to communicate is an important part of the movie. I was reading um, one of the screenwriters. I can't remember if it's the novelist or or just the screenwriter. I had sort of come up with this backstory for uh, why the warden says that uh, because that line was sort of questioned, like it sounded a little too intellectual for the character to say. Um, and the explanation was that the warden had been going to um, some sort of like uh, uh, seminar on sort of cutting edge prison reform uh, management or something like that. And, 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 and so the line becomes a, a comment, the, the screenwriter's commentary on the barbarism of even, uh, you know, so-called progressive notions of prison reform. Uh, because he says what we have here is failure to communicate as he's, violently abusing an inmate you know yeah so just because you have the fancy words now from the state probably uh to explain what's happening it does not uh negate the violence that is still inherent in the uh prison master prisoner dynamic yeah it's sort of of like when they first bring luke and and the few other men that come in with them into the prison and the the warden or whatever says he says like i can be a nice guy or i can be a real son of a bitch or something like that um and or i can be a mean son of a bitch <laughs> yeah and it's such like a that that separation and this is kind of what luke realizes pretty quickly that separation doesn't matter because you're still like the overseer of the prison like that doesn't change our relationship at all really um it's it's rather like i guess he would be treated better but he'd still be imprisoned and sort of robbed of his freedom so it doesn't really matter that much if the right. you know if he's nice to him at the end of the day he's still got to go sleep in the the fucking uh you know uh i keep wanting to say barracks but that's not it whatever you'd call that the shack that they sleep yeah. in yeah one of the best lines and and the line that sort of gets to what you're talking about is uh, the warden says something to Luke, uh, very patronizing. I can't remember what it is, but but Luke says, "Yeah, boss, you got to stop being so good to me." You know, real, real sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. And it's and that's exactly what you're talking about. Is exactly what he's what that line points out. It's like there's no such thing. There are no like like any small kindness is totally negated by the larger context and the larger dynamic between us. Yeah. And just the, and and this is not by any means exclusive to this movie, but that sort of way in which the communication to talk about, you know, a failure to communicate uh, the way that communication between people with that kind of uh, power dynamic changes from what you would like a normal conversation like you and i might have uh, and it becomes so couched in authority and knowledge of this relationship and the inability to escape it 
that it sort of it, it overrides everything else. And that something that made that stick out to me is when they start really hitting Luke hard um, after I think his second uh, escape attempt. And whatever the dude, one of the overseers, is like, uh, "What's your dirt doing in my ditch?" <laughs> and he's like, I don't, "I don't know, sir." And then, you know, digs it out, and then he comes back and says, "What's this dirt doing in my yard?" He's like, "I don't know," and he just has to keep going back and forth. Um, it's just that the way that the communication changes, where Luke can give any number of answers, he can be, he can play coy, or he can go along with it, or he can rebel or he can joke it doesn't matter at the end of the day he's still got to move the dirt um and it, it just kind of it drives home that kind of dead end thing where of driving luke to the breaking point as well as kind of you as you're watching him and all the guys watching him of like you know being like oh just give him a break but there's nothing you can do about it yeah and and at first in the in one scenario they they start playing music to try to sort of motivate him. Mm-hmm. But then by the end, they've kind of, they've kind of lost faith in him. Um, you know, cause he, he breaks. Uh, but, but going back to that sort of implicit oppression in the, in the dynamic between guard or, or boss, as they're told to call the, the guards uh, and the prisoners, I recently watched, uh, a documentary called Capital, based on Thomas Piketty's, you know, famous book from 2013, I think it was. Um, and there was a really interesting part, and I think this 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 story is is a you know kind of viral, at least in a minor way. Um, there's a, a study from some university, I think it's the University of California, Berkeley. Um, in the psychology department, they did a, a study with uh, Monopoly. Do you know what I'm talking about? The board game? Yeah. I don't, I'm not with, sure. This is, you got to watch this documentary or at least this part. Uh, it's fascinating. So they recorded just like hundreds and hundreds of hours of different people playing Monopoly. And each time, each new game, each new new set of players, they would flip a coin and one person would be the rich player and the other person would be the poor player. And it was, like I said, determined by a coin toss. And so the rich person got like twice as much money. Anytime they passed go, they got $200 and the poor person only got $100. They, they started off with a, a clear advantage. Uh, and so then the, these psychologists study the interactions as the game goes on, you know, monopoly games go on forever. And as, as, as the games progress and time goes on, the rich players of course get richer, the poor players lose, but the dynamic between them shifts and, and the rich players start saying sort of snarky little things to the poor players. Um, And of course they're joking because it's, you know, people in, 2019 or whatever playing monopoly for some study they've agreed to but that impulse is still there to to sort of condescend even if it's in a joking way um, and then at the end they do these exit interviews uh the psychologist was explaining and they asked people why though they asked the winners why they thought they won and not 
one single person attributed their success to being the rich player, to the advantage they were given. They, they talked about their strategies and, you know, which properties they put together and bought or whatever it is you do in Monopoly. And, uh, all that, uh, I'm just reminded of that, uh, in talking about the dynamic between a prison guard and prisoner, uh, just to say there is no way to sort of transcend that dynamic. And I think in that study, you can sort of see that kind of disparity really uh, <laughs> democratized. Like it is, everyone is capable of being uh, a piece of shit if they are put in circumstances that allow them to condescend to people. Have you, have you heard of the board game anti-monopoly? No, it's, uh, I'm trying to bring it up. Cause it, it's like, a. okay. It was made by this professor from San Francisco state university named, uh, Ralph Anspach. And, it goes, you know, it's an idea that kind of goes way back, but it's basically an answer to Monopoly. Um, and what basically, as Wikipedia says here, this person thought that Monopoly made the idea of a Monopoly seem like something that's a desirable, like that's what you want to do, right? So that's the point of Monopoly is you get all the all the territory and you get all the money and you win and you leave everybody else poor. Um, so his idea was to uh, show how harmful that, monopolies could be so in this game and this is just based on the the couple times i played it is uh it's kind of like what you're saying where it's set up with these roles where you can be a monopolist or you can be i think maybe they called it a capitalist i can't remember which is problematic in itself uh but if you're a monopolist you get all of these advantages you get more money at the beginning you get to draw from a separate pile of cards that have bigger payouts all that sort of stuff and it's easier for you to win the game so it's not impossible for the other people to win the game. It's just way more difficult. It takes way more work. Um, and it just makes me, I don't know, it makes me think about what you're saying, that uh, you're saying that no one attributed their win to the advantages that they were given. But I bet if you had the disadvantages, you were keenly aware of them, just like in real life. Yes. And so it makes me think of, we were playing this game and it was me, me and Lava and her sister and our, our brother-in-law. And uh, <laughs> Lava was one of the, whatever the the not monopolists are called, I can't remember. Um, and so she starts with less money. She has more struggles to deal with in the game. It's set up for her to lose. And at one point, she she's doing really well. And she's, she's kicking ass and everything's going all right. She's talking trash. And then she starts having to pay a little bit here and a little bit there. And then she hits a certain space and has to pay all this other money. And eventually she gets down to where she's broke, has no money. And she gets so upset that she actually like starts crying a little bit about, you know, cause she's so competitive and she's just like, she's like, it's not fair. I don't have any. You're talking, you talking about lava or her sister? Lava. Lava. Okay. And I'm like, she's like, it's not fair. I don't have any money left. It's not fair. And I was like, yeah, exactly. It's not fair. That's the whole point. Um, it was, it was kind of deeply endearing of like, no, you're right. It's not, this game's bullshit. (laughs) It's designed to show you that. Um, right. Right. That's interesting. I I, I like that. Um, that kind of inversion. Um, yeah. And I have this, 
theory that I don't even think it's a theory anymore is that if you make enough money, it kind of breaks your brain. It's like money's a, a disease in some way. It sort of like makes you blind to, to things going on around you, all that sort of stuff is the root of all evil. So on and so forth. Fill in the blanks right. for yourself. Yeah. Uh, whatever it does, it certainly creates that divide that we started with where, you know, like I said, no matter what sort of small kindnesses may exist between prison guard and prisoner, it is not a true kindness. It is, uh, it is, if anything, it helps to, if anything, it's, it's corporate yoga, you know, it's a small, <laughs> it's a, it's a small sense of freedom in a larger oppressive context, uh, that, that only serves to ratify the oppression. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, wellness corporate wellness <laughs> yeah i i want to talk well I, I don't know how much we'll talk about it but it's something it's one of the parts of the movie that stuck out but i i don't i'm not entirely sure what i think of it but the fact that luke throughout the whole movie has a bottle opener around his neck <laughs> yeah i don't yeah really, I, I, I'm I, sure. again i think i think it's part of the you know everything is so you know, as they say in uh, uh, Parasite by Bong Joon-ho, very metaphorical. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it, the movie starts with him drunk. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's, it's about uh, spirit again. You know, like the, uh, the common word for alcohol is spirits. Um, and so I think he is like the, and, and of course he, he brings, you know, a sort of spirit to this work camp and to these prisoners that he starts living with. And to me, the, I take it as like he is, um, the same, you know, there's a, there's a Christ allegory for sure, or Christ figure story here. Um, the, the same way in the, in the New Testament, Jesus is turning water into wine. Maybe Luke is popping open the beers. Also, could they drink beer in fucking prison? I assumed it was because the the big trade item is cold drinks. So I assumed it was like Cokes or something. Well, it looks it looks like beer. I don't know. That they're drinking. That'd be I nice. Don't, I, I don't either. Uh but yeah, I think what I thought would be something similar. And it's interesting that he keeps it throughout the whole movie. Um, it's not mm -hmm. something that was like confiscated when he gets there. Um, and you see him just like using it every so often. They pulling it out and cracking open a bottle. Um, I don't know. It's it, That whole Christ allegory is... I didn't really... It, it becomes more evident kind of as the movie goes along, but it didn't really pop out to me as strongly until the egg scene when he's laying on the table they sort of leave him on the table and he's you know splayed out and then how the men talk about him and it gets kind of more and more intense as they go along to the point where him and you know he goes to escape and drag line jumps in the truck with him and then when they are trying to you know they run into the church or whatever they're trying to figure out where to go and you can tell that drag line sort of looks at luke as almost like this holy kind of figure he's like what are we gonna do like what, what what's gonna happen now and, and luke's like i don't know what the fuck you expect like nothing good's going to come of anything um and then at the end when dragline comes into the church 
He's like, they said we can come back if we, you know, they're they're not even that mad at us as long as we come we peacefully. peacefully. Yeah, and and Luke's like, oh, you poor simple dumbass. <laughs> yeah. Just that- yeah. What I what I like about uh, what I most like, I think, about this movie is that the Christian allegory is is set in a radical political context. It's not like it's not like trying to teach you a Bible lesson. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's using a familiar story of Jesus and and making it the 1960s anti-establishment story, um, as well as you know a sort of literal kind of prison story. Uh, if I have a if I have a criticism of it, it's that the allegory seems a little confused at places where it's like, so, so when Luke's mother comes, the conversation they have, they talk about his father in very sort of religious ways. And Luke's like, yeah, I would have liked to known him. Yeah. Um, and so it's one, one of many clues into the religious allegory, but then at the end, and, and, and before the end, uh, the scene you mentioned where he's in the rain and he's sort of like hollering at God, um, is a very literal, like, oh, okay, he's talking about God, literally. Um, not about his father who was talked about as God metaphorically. And then at the end, he's in a church and he's like literally praying. And so it's like, it, to me, it doesn't make a ton of sense to like set up these metaphors as like, oh, his Luke's absent father is the absent God of this story. Um, it's, but in a way it sort of reminded me of like, uh, I don't know if there's like a word for this, the, like, like in a Shakespearean sonnet where the last, where the last two lines kind of say, uh, explicitly what the previous metaphors in the poem kind of hint at. Mm-hmm. Is it? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Is there like a name for that? I don't know. Probably. Anyway, it, it it seems like that. Like it seems like most of the movie is just this kind of thinly veiled but veiled uh, allegory, and then at the end, it's like, okay, let's put the cards on the table. This is what we've been talking about this whole time: is this relationship with God, or or uh, the God, the father, whatever you want to say. Uh, but it seemed weird. Like I said, it seems weird to set up metaphors and then just literally talk about the thing that the metaphors were attempting to talk about. Um, anyway, it's still badass. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just, the at the end when it's kind of the, the church of Luke among the guys, who are, you know, sort of hanging out in drag lines, telling them the story and they're kind of reminiscing and they have the, the picture, you know, um, even though Luke, when he comes back says, Oh, that's not, you know, that's not real. I paid two weeks salary to have that picture made. The, yeah. The picture sort of functions and, and the magazine itself functions like the Bible. Um, like it's this sort of, uh, false representation and these these guys swear it's real, um, and and then Luke has to start screaming at the guys to stop feeding off him and stop 
you know, making up these stories and, and start living their own lives, which is, you know, uh, certainly there's a parallel there with how Christians behave towards the, the Christian story. Um, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, something I didn't notice is that Dennis Hopper is Baba Lugatz. Yeah. I, I don't know how I missed that, but I was looking at the cast and I was like, oh, wow, yeah. Didn't catch that somehow. Yeah. And Harry this Dean is Storm. just two, year, two years before Easy Rider, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think the Easy Rider is 69. And Harry Dean Stanton, fellow Kentuckian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but the Dennis Hopper of- looks a lot like Owen Wilson to me in this movie. <laughs> I can see that. I think the haircut does a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but the uh, to sort of continue on this theme a little bit, the the use of the song "Plastic Jesus." Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like that all time great use of a song in a movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Banjo in the barracks, "Plastic Jesus," and just the theme of the song. You know, as long as I got my plastic Jesus. Um pretty good stand in for you know it's 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 very kind of ham-fisted but i think it works yeah when you when you've been clued in it's sort of like sort of like mother you know where once you're clued into the allegory you're like oh that's 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 all this film is really yeah um which isn't necessarily a bad thing depending on how it's handled um i think I think what might happen when, with uh, movies that are heavily allegorical like this is that when people find out about it, either through, you know, they're watching it and picking up on it or somebody tells them, it's kind of like a movie with a twist ending where people just automatically decide that it sucks. Yeah, um, it, they don't want to feel tricked. Yeah. And we talked about this with The Village, how like yeah. people were so pissed off. But The Village is a fine movie. There's nothing wrong with it. Um. But yeah, the, with this, uh, you find out like, oh, Luke's this kind of Jesus figure. It's like, well, yeah, that's most stories in the Western world have some sort of Christ figure. So this one just happens right. to maybe play it up a bit more than some others. Yeah. And, and what's worse, though, is like a lot of the, those stories are like have those figures in them unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a great passage uh, in a book called. Uh, a terrible love of war by something Hillman. I can't remember the guy's first name. He's a kind of a Jungian psychologist. And he is talking about how utterly pervaded with Christian ethics. Most atheism is, um, and how, you, even if you don't identify if, if, if in the West, obviously, of course, you know, that's, we're just talking about the West here, but if you, um, uh, many people in the West who claim to be sort of atheist, um, are, are really still, you cannot escape the impact of, of what passes for ethics um, that comes from Christianity. Um, and, and he, he goes through this big long list of all, all the, all the ideas that are directly sort of 
uh, integral to to Christianity. Uh, and and I'm not saying like, oh, all all people are Christians and don't know it. I'm ju- I'm just agreeing with this writer, Thomas Hillman or James uh, Hillman. Not, sorry, James. <laughs> James yes, Hillman. James. James. I was Hillman. looking right at it and said the wrong name. <laughs> Uh, James Hillman, um, when he says it's uh, it's inescapable, you don't not the belief, but the ethical system uh, and its ties to Christianity. Interesting. I'll have to think about that. Um, I can, I'll, I'll send you the passage because I, I feel like the way I said that made it sound like I'm like saying everyone's a christian secretly and that's not not at all what <laughs> i'm saying christians uh no but even i tell my students this all the time like even if you were raised in a sort of christian tradition or not like if you're reading american literature or literature from like we said a lot of the west or the global north or whatever you want to call it it has that stuff baked into it by the very nature of where it was written and who it was written by Right. Yeah. So at least but, even if you don't want to say go so far as to be like Jungian and say that it has this sort of stamp upon the unconscious of, of people of, of those places, then you could at least, I think, with certainty, say that it has that sort of stamp on the art of those places. Um, yeah. 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 That's a good way to put it. Let me uh, give me like two seconds. I'm going to take my headphones off and grab this book. I've probably got that passage underlined. I don't want to fuck it up. All right. We're going to wait for Will to get the book. Okay, I'm back. I'm really close to my bookshelf. Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> Let me see here. This, this might take me a second. I'll just sort of casually flip through here. Um, what, how did we get started on? Oh, just talking about the Christ figure in and its popularity in all forms of Western art. I wrote my undergraduate, like my final paper. I don't even, it wasn't like, it wasn't a thesis, but whatever it's called. Capstone thing. Yeah. Something like that. uh, On Christ figures in American film or, or religious allegory in American film. And uh, it was a lot of fun to write. I wrote about uh, the Truman Show and uh, the Green Mile, which is maybe one of the worst. Uh, it's a great movie, but in terms of like a, a, a religious allegory, it's not great. Uh, I wrote about something. What was the other? Uh, uh, Dead Man Walking. Oh. That's a that's a that's another movie. I mean, obviously, it's kind of overtly religious because uh, Susan Sarandon's character, Sister Helen Prejean, is a real person and is explicitly religious as a nun. Uh, but that's another one, sort of like Cool Hand Luke, that puts the sort of Christ figure in a political context. Um, which again is is a major reason why I think Cool Hand Luke is is very good 
Um, because I think, I kind of think that's how the got the story in the gospels should be read in a political context, at least partially. I cannot find this fucking passage. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I could tell you're like stretching this, trying to find the passage. <laughs> Uh, feel free to jump in any fucking time. Oh, uh, okay. Well, thinking about, uh, Cool Hand Luke and sort of, um, the, I don't know, I want to talk about the ending a little bit and, uh, the sort of the, the Lukean smile, uh, the, the Jacksonian smile, <laughs> can we call it that? Um, <laughs> Because there's this kind of, I, I don't know if you would call, I, I, to point to Luke as a kind of Christ figure, I think is is correct because there's all this allegorical stuff going on as we've been kind of talking about, but his death doesn't really function in that kind of way. There's no real redemption. He's not really doing anything for the men except giving them like a nice memory, I guess. But even then... Is it really that nice because it's just a reminder at the end that, hey, you're in this, you're incarcerated and your life is sort of at the whim of the state and, you know, you can be shot and they can just say you're trying to escape and that would be the end of it. Um, so I, I don't know if the, it doesn't have that same sort of redemptive quality. So it sort of, you feel at the end, you don't feel any sort of, or at least I didn't feel any kind of like triumph or ident identification with the, the guys in the prison, it just seemed very kind of deeply sad to me, except for maybe Luke sort of realizing that the only way he's going to get out of this kind of hell on earth is to, I guess, he commits suicide by cop in a way. Um, but there's no real, there doesn't seem to be that kind of re redemption or, you know, nobody is saved at the end. Yeah, you're kind of like, so what? Yeah. What what has all this been for? And you end with that the scene, like a clip of Dragline, and now he's got his two sets of leg irons because he tried to escape. And he's, you know, still shirtless, and he's just whacking the weeds and sweating, and he stops and he wipes his brow and he goes right back to it. And it's, well, okay, that, that could have not have occurred. Like, he could have never met Luke, and he would be in a... He'd actually be in a better position because he wouldn't have leg irons. Yeah, and he's probably, he would probably be getting out sooner without those escape attempts on his record. Yeah. Um, okay. Here's this passage. So he is talking, he, he does say we are all Christians, but he's, it's a, it's a condemnation. He says, we are all Christians, regardless of the faith you profess. Um, wherever you are in the Western world, you are psychologically Christian. Uh, once you feel your own personal soul to be distinct from the world out there, and that consciousness and conscience are lodged in that soul and not in the world out there, and that even the impersonal selfish gene is individualized in your person, you are psychologically Christian. Once your first response to a dream, a bit of news, an idea divides immediately into the moral, quote, good or, quote, bad, psychologically you are Christian. Once you feel sin in connection with your flesh and its impulses, again, you are Christian. When a hunch comes true, a slip-up is taken as an omen, and you trust in dreams, only to shake off these inklings as superstition. You are Christian because that religion bans non-doctrinal forms of communication, 
with the invisibles accepting Jesus. Accepting as like E-X-C, accepting. Uh, when you turn from books and learning and instead to your inner feelings to find simple answers to complexities, you are Christian for the kingdom of God and the voice of his true word lies within, etc., etc. So he, he does say the Western world is Christian uh, inescapably, but it's it's a it's a condemnation. It's a critique. Ah, gotcha. Uh, no, that I mean that makes perfect sense, right? Um, I'm I'm thinking of like utterances because there's a lot of you know people have written about the sort of psychological and uh, psychoanalytic uh, meaning of of utterances, and I'm thinking specifically about things you say when you're surprised or scared or when you like stub your toe. And, oh my God. Oh my God. Or Jesus Christ. Right. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty immediately common. without, without a conscious thought that just comes out of your mouth. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, that shows, even if you're not religious, that's pretty well ingrained and it's, it's sort of become part of the landscape where it's not unusual to hear someone say that. And it's like maybe the most taboo thing, especially I guess in the South, maybe, uh, is saying "God damn." You yeah. know, you could you could call a woman the worst thing you can think of, and that's like frowned upon. But if you like say "God damn," you're going to hell. Yeah, and and it sort of makes me think of like similar situations in non-Christian uh, backgrounds, non-Christian areas. So. It, you know, in Islam, there's you're obviously not going to say Jesus Christ or something like that happens. You say something different. The the big one that everybody knows is Al Akbar, which is it got well, it's become known in the West as like that's the thing that the terrorists say, uh, but <laughs> just means God is great, right? So if something good happens to you, Al Akbar, God, and even if it's not great, right? It's just sort of a it's like Jesus Christ or or God or something like, saying something like that in the West, where it's just a part of your kind of unconscious reaction to things is to yeah. first and foremost, reach out to that connection. Um, and even if it's it, in like, it has nothing to do with your faith or lack of faith in these things. That's really interesting to think about. I've never really thought about utterances as like a, <clears throat> an object of study. Um, but I, I, I read a book by, uh, I can't remember who it was by. I know it was another, uh, like a Jungian thinker. Uh, and they said, pay attention to the songs that you find stuck in your head. Um, th I don't know how this is going to sound, uh, but this is, uh, I probably read that maybe two years ago. And I, I, it's kind of a, a tall order because it's basically uh, an instruction to uh, be conscious of the things you're not conscious of, you know, which is a very difficult thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but just sort of notice when a, when a song gets stuck in your head and, and don't take it as arbitrary. So ask yourself, why am I singing that song? And it, it you know, the, the writer was saying that it can sort of have the same meaning that dreams have, because it's just this sort of unconscious content in, in your mind somewhere. Uh, anyway, that was like two years ago, maybe uh, uh, th this past year when my grandmother passed away from COVID, my dad's mom. I 
had heard the news uh, from my brother. So my brother had found out that my grandmother died before I did. And I had, and so he told me, and I had not talked to my dad. And I was sort of dreading that conversation. It was just going to be kind of awkward, like, hey, sorry your mom died. Uh, you know, I, I, it's, it was just a conversation I was not looking forward to, but I knew it had to happen. And um, I found myself singing, just seemingly arbitrarily. Do you remember? You, do you remember the candy uh, and the jingle for the candy ring pops? You, you know what a ring pop is? Yeah. Like the little sucker that fits on a fucking ring. It's, it's a pop. On, uh, it's a pop on a ring. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I found myself singing the jingle, uh, which just is. It's just a uh, ooh ring pops. <laughs> and uh, so I was just saying, everyone I remember the jingle, but apparently it's not much of a jingle. No, it's like it's like hot pockets. You know, oh, okay. Like hot pockets. Um. Anyway, I found myself singing ooh ring pops. And everyone in my family uh, refers to my dad uh, as Pops because that's what my niece and nephew call him. And so Ring Pops is what I was singing <laughs> at the time I needed to call. I was like nervous about calling my dad. God. And I was like, man, there's like something that like actually might be something to that where, you know, dreams are always full of these like ridiculous puns. Uh, if, if you, if you, you know, stop and, and think about your dreams for a little bit. Um, but I, it, like that just made me laugh out loud. Um, it, you know, it could be a coincidence, but why the fuck would I be thinking about that song? I, I'll go through phases where I'll have a song stuck in my head. I, I feel like most people do this, but you have a song stuck in your head for like up to a week or something like that. I never really thought about it. the last one that got stuck in my head was I, I recently was like you know what I'm gonna go listen to a bunch of Phoebe Bridgers stuff because I really only know her from Better Oblivion Community Center and she I've heard all these great things so I was like okay I'm gonna finally listen to her music and that's not not to say that like I didn't want to I just am really slow to come around to new music because I'm getting old and all my tastes are pretty much solidified. Yeah, uh, you've been we've been burnt too many times by. <laughs> So I uh, I went and you know the, her two big songs are probably Kyoto and and uh, and uh, Motion Sickness. Um, so I got Motion Sickness stuck in my head for like a week, and would just find myself kind of like in my head, just like playing it over and over again. Um, specific like parts of it, like last chorus or like first verse or whatever. Um. I haven't done any sort of psychoanalysis for that. I just thought it was like a really catchy, well-made song with a lot. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. And and I think, uh, and I, I get you know songs stuck in my head all the time when I discover something new or you know uh, consciously like seek out a song to listen to. I think whatever book it was I was reading, I was saying that was like not, you know not necessarily pay attention to the things that you are consciously paying attention to. But like, like I said, there's no reason uh, beyond what I said to be, for me to be singing ring pops. It's not like I watched a YouTube video of like old commercials and heard it 
and thought it was funny and so repeated it in my mind. It was just somehow those words, that pun, like ring pops, call your dad, in the deep, dark crevices of my mind, that, you know, that association was somewhere and it floated to the surface and I just sort of unconsciously started singing that song or that jingle. Um, which is which is a very different thing from like oh this is a catchy song i'm gonna you know i like this I'm yeah, gonna yeah. think about it, it what makes that so funny to me is i thought where you're going is like i remember when i was a kid my dad would always buy me a ring pop and we would bond <laughs> over it and it turned out it was just a pun some <laughs> shitty pun yeah yeah there dude there's all kinds of like uh, I, I don't know if i told you i just like sat down and read the interpretation of dreams like a month or two ago and you wouldn't believe how much fucking wordplay there is not not like freud making puns but freud describing dreams with puns he's got that whole book jokes in their relation to the unconscious um but it's really interesting from someone as you know who just like somehow just like thinks in puns for no reason and in an annoying way um it, it was fascinating to see someone uh, talk about puns in a in a sort of intellectually serious way. Hmm. We'll have to. I don't know. I, I'm not. I've read the bare minimum of Freud that I needed to pass theory classes. Gun. <laughs> it's a deep. it's a pretty good read, honestly. It's not like like he's a good writer. It's not it's not that stuffy. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm most familiar with is the bit about the uncanny, which is well written. Um, it's not like you say; it's not as sort of you imagine that it's going to have this certain level of like eruditeness. Is that even the right word? That's the first time I've ever Erud- used that word. Erudition. Erudition. Damn it! See, that it's the first time I've used that word in the wild. Um, but <laughs> eruditeness is a is a perfect uh, word to get wrong. <laughs> you know what i'm Um, saying have i have i done it on the podcast where i i I use the word uh dilettante instead of debutante or the other way around have i done that Uh, i don't know i will i I I listened to an old episode one time and i heard i can't remember if it was you or me make make a mistake and i was like oh man that was fucking egregious what i can't remember what it was though i but it was something like that where it was like words that sound similar but have no connection yeah i i routinely fuck those two words up and we'll say i'll I'll try to say like debutante ball and i'll say dilettante ball <laughs> which is like more interesting i think um yeah but erudition cool. eruditeness eruditity <laughs> um, uh, but anyway yeah the, the point is it, it was more enjoyable to read than i thought it was going to be um yeah how the fuck did we get here i don't know but you know that and the thing that is one thing about cool hand luke is that it's a uh, i think it's a great movie but there's not really the things we've touched on i feel like are kind of all that's there because like we're saying it is pretty pretty on the nose with a lot of stuff once you sort of pick up what's happening uh then after that it becomes more of like uh the sort of existential rolling the boulder up the hill type thing with the repeated escapes and the punishments and uh, all that sort of stuff and then up to the ending where it's kind of 
confused about whether or not what has happened is a good thing or a, a kind of ultimately meaningless thing. Yeah, and I'm glad you said existentialist because I think the the sort of emphasis on nothing, you know, like the concept of nothing is very you know on par with 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 an existentialist perspective. Um so cool hand of cool hand Luke, we learn from their conversation about uh poker, I guess is what they're playing. Uh that what what cool hand means is nothing having a terrible hand and you know he says sometimes having nothing is not uh ha- having nothing can be a real cool hand or something like that um and then there's another the other part where they are uh paving the road and luke sort of like becomes this uh motivator and starts getting everyone to like work as hard as they can yeah yeah and then uh uh, what's his name? Dragline says, you know, why, why'd you do this? What are we going to do now? And Luke's, you know, sweating his ass off and he just laughs and says nothing. And the um, guards just have to sort of stand there. Right. Right. And so, uh, and I think Dragline says, oh, it's a beautiful thing doing nothing, sitting here doing nothing is a beautiful thing. So there's this, uh, Emphasis on on this idea of of nothing being nothing and doing nothing as as freedom or or not feeling pressure to uh, you know I I'm not a hundred percent sure what what it's going for but uh, it reminds me of of you know the nada that that uh, what is it a, a clean well lighted place speaks of Hemingway's clean well lighted place. Um, you know, that's, that's obviously talked about as like an existentialist story, uh, given the time period it was written. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think you, you can see a lot. If you look for it in this movie, you can see a lot of different kind of intellectual angles to take. There's the, maybe the most obvious sort of Christian allegory, but it's this sort of politicized Christian allegory and it becomes the sort of countercultural anti-establishment 19 uh, anti-establishment 1960s Jesus uh, as opposed to like Sunday school Jesus plastic Jesus um, it, it, it's also got this Camus existentialist thing so uh, yeah I think it's uh, I think it's a rich text because <laughs> it, it made me think a little bit about kind of the uh, the idea of uh of work and forced labor versus regular labor or a labor of love and the differences between them. And what Luke is doing there is sort of taking forced labor in this chain gang and turning it into like, maybe not a labor of love, but kind of like a labor of spite of like, Oh, I'll show you how to work motherfucker. Like that kind of thing. And and shoveling super fast. And that, you know, the montage is so sort of like kinetic and it shows sort of them running down the road and like getting to the next pile and shoveling. Um, Well, Luke, yeah, Luke immediately understands the spirit of things that are that are meant to be communicated to the prisoners. So he understands that they are having them pave this road to as like a punishment and, and to be this act of drudgery and misery. And he says, fuck you. 
we're going to have a great time doing this. We're going to make a sport out of it. And then we're going to sit on our asses and do nothing and, and yuck it up while, you know, while the guards just stand there. It's the same way he has no plans to escape until uh, they put him in the hole because they think he might try to escape. He has no plans to escape until they tell him he can't or that till they show that they're afraid he might. Yes. And then, like you say, he, he picks up on the, the messaging of it and that's sort of what, right. what, what he turns upon. Um, yeah. Damn, I was going to say. And, and also the, it's this kind of connection uh, to like go back to this idea of being on a work gang is it's, they're doing labor for free that would otherwise be paid labor, which is, it's not a new thing, right? Like prisoners do this now where they get paid like 40 cents a day to, you know, make prepackaged sandwiches or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, Fire fight, fight fires. Well, yeah, fight, yeah, dude, fuck. Didn't even think about that. Um, but labor that it's labor that in the sense of, or in the, the uh, instance of cool hand Luke, it's road work, right? So it's something that's kind of for the common good, right? It's maintaining infrastructure, but it's it's used as a, a punishment as opposed to something that people should be, uh, I don't know, like cognizant about and grateful for, <laughs> I guess, of, of maintaining these kinds of uh, backcountry roads. Um, and since the onus of that falls upon the state, the state does it in the cheapest way possible, which is inmate labor. Um, so I, there's that sort of greater connection to this kind of American capitalist system going on, um, where, you know, that's what Luke is literally rebelling against in the beginning when he's cutting the heads off the, the, uh, I keep wanting to say fire hydrants off the parking meters. Um, well, he's, he's rebelling against the fact that in his escape attempts, at least to a degree, you know, he and the prisoners are being treated like parking meters. They are these. They are these tools to maintain the kind of public, uh, the public roads, and, and maybe the road is sort of the, uh, you know, kind of the metaphor for the the establishment path. This is, you know, this is the path you have to stay on, and any deviation from that is is unacceptable. Um, you know, the same way a parking meter is is, like he says, municipal property property of the state um the the men are you know paving the road on you know that the that the parking meters sit on um and 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 the whole like establishment anti-establishment story is basically told through strangely enough like traffic signal imagery (laughs) you know there's like traffic lights coming on and off stop signs coming in and out violation on the parking meter as the movie starts with uh when when luke escapes towards the end he's stealing the the truck um so it's like the the metaphor of the mainstream is basically and and the transgression against the mainstream is is communicated in this like traffic imagery strangely enough yeah I hadn't even thought of that except for the, well, you know, when they're driving Luke off at the end after he's been shot and the traffic light changes. Um, it, the movie starts with that too. Uh, there's a, a green light in the background that turns to red. Interesting. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, great movie. Glad we watched it. I liked it. What are we doing next week? Next week, we are doing The Midnight Sky from 2020, directed by Georges Clooney. Uh, Actually, it's Schnee Blay. And I was looking, the music was done by Alexandra Desplat, or Display, however you say it. I've seen that name before. Who, 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 he did Grand know him? Budapest and The Shape of Water and a bunch of other movies. Nice. So you know the music's going to be banging. Uh, screenplay by Mark L. Smith. Mark L, not Mark Hill. Uh, who did the screenplay for The Revenant. Some other things. Cool. Yeah, I saw I saw the preview for this on Netflix and it had to do with, you know, climate, apocalypse, something. And I thought, hey, I'm a co-host of a podcast that talks about climate change movies. Maybe we should do that. Yeah, and I'm just I'm just to give working. listeners some insight into the selection process. Yeah. Literally two seconds before <laughs> we start. Um and I'm I'm interested because this isn't Clooney's first just looking at movies he's directed. Um, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Good night and good luck. Good night and good luck. Did he do one of the Coen Brothers? Uh, like I think the Coen Brothers wrote like Suburbicon or something like that. Yeah, I never saw that. But I didn't did. either. Um, and a few other films. But, you know, I think he's... I think Clooney has a okay understanding of film as sort of a form listen to me talking out of my ass as if he's not like super rich and famous um but <laughs> well I, he he's not rich and famous for being a director although good night and good luck is is if my good. memory serves correctly was very cool yeah and uh he has again not hard to do if you're super rich but he seems to have a good sense of humor about things makes me think of like burn after reading that's a character that you would not necessarily expect him to play but he's yeah. hilarious yeah. um yeah he's great in uh as the voice in uh, uh mr fox fantastic mr fox too yeah yeah, uh, yeah he seems like a seems like a cool dude i feel like he'd like me though you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> um also who's born in kentucky people in kentucky love saying that even though he wasn't really like He's not really like a Kentucky dude. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, that's what we're doing next week. The Midnight Sky. I look forward to it. It's based Let's on a it. novel. Anything, anything else? I'm, I'm done. That's all I got. I'm, I'm finished. Finished. <laughs>